0: Thank you um, again for today. Um, thank you for, for your word and for your servant James who you used um, to write this letter um, not just to the first century church but to us as, as well. Um, I, I am grateful for the time Lord that you've given us in, in, in through this letter and I think I'm partly amazed that you have allowed me to um, complete it or will have allowed me to complete it after today. Um, and I, and I thank you for that. I thank you for what you have showed us and what you have taught us and how you've changed, um, me, um, and exposed sin in my life through, um, through your word. And I know you've done it, um, uh, for others as well. Cause they've, they've told me and I, and I thank you for that work that you've, you've done. And, and I thank you for the work that you're going to continue to do, um, not just through this book, but through your entire word. And, and I ask that you would you would continue that, Father, that you would continue to sanctify us as we, um, as we hear your word preached every Sunday, um, as we hear it taught um, on Sundays and on, on Wednesdays. Continue to sanctify us um, as we study it on our own, as we have our own devotional time and our own more serious study time, God. I do pray for for your glory and for our good you would you would continue that process. And I also pray, Father, that you would continue to to save, you would continue to grant repentance and faith as as the gospel is proclaimed. And as it's proclaimed Um, from this pulpit on Sundays and on Wednesdays as it's proclaimed in our our children's classes, as it's proclaimed in our our women's Bible studies, our our men's Bible studies, as it's proclaimed as we gather together in fellowship, God, I pray that you would continue to to save and that you would save many and you would do it, Father, for your glory, um, but also for the good of those whom you save. Jesus, um, we love you, I love you, and we praise you, and I praise you, and I thank you for all that you are, and all that you've done, and all that you will do. And it is for your sake, and in your name, that I ask these things this morning, amen. Okay, if you would turn with me to James, chapter 5. We are, I don't even remember when we began, James. Um, I don't know. Well over a year ago, I think, a year and a half to me. I don't know. I have no idea how long it's been. I, I, it seems like we just started, for me anyway. Yesterday, it's still all fresh on my mind, and, and here we are, finished or will be finished with, with James today, and I am excited. Um, that we're that we're done. I'm excited that God has has allowed us this, this time to actually go through this entire letter, and, and you know I think there's a part of me that's that's disappointed. <laughs> I, maybe not disappointed, but I should say sad because I've I've really um, enjoyed my study and my time through this this letter. I, I hope you have as well. I hope God has used it to challenge you and to encourage you and to convict you and as it convicts you he brings you to repentance and sanctifies you in you and, and through that and so um, I, I anticipate with excitement's finishing and I'm saddened at the same time and I'm excited about what God is bringing on the horizon for where I'm going next and, and again I would ask for your prayers um, for me for that I, I'm not going to be starting a new book next month. I don't believe um, I believe next month will be a probably just a one-time topical something old sermon Randy and I have been working together on something he's I think going to preach and then I'm going to follow up with something the the next week that's going to complement what he preaches on and then probably the end of July I will begin the new series book from the Old Testament, so please pray for me and continue to do that um, as as I seek God's direction and where I go from here and where I take you from from here. And I know I know Randy. Has, has that same request. I know that he's in Mark and I know that it's a, it's a weekly chore for him and it's a good chore, don't get me wrong, but for him um, as he seeks God's direction week by week where to go with the text even as he considers other, other directions and considers even breaking up um, Mark into certain sections with with some breaks going maybe to the Old Testament or other letters in the New Testament here and there. So please just... Continue to pray for for both of us as one we seek god 's direction as to where we need to be going when it comes to our preaching and teaching, and as we seek god 's direction and where we are leading you um, as well so let 's turn to James that being said let 's turn to James chapter chapter five James chapter five, we are going to be in the last two verses today, verses nineteen and verse 20. I did not get an outline done for you today, and I apologize for that. So what I want to do is I want to give you first the, the title and or which is the main point, I think, um, of my sermon. And then I'm going to give you four subpoints. And The title is this. It is true faith passionately pursues parted professors with a proclamation of The gospel. Randy's challenged me to say that 10 times fast, and I can't do it because I keep twisting it up. But true faith passionately pursues parted professors with a proclamation of the gospel. Think of the theme, before I give you those, those other points, think of the theme real quick of James when we began it way back when, right? And the theme was true faith works, right? True faith works. James is dealing and has been dealing with the external evidence or the lack of external evidence in regards to true faith, right? And throughout this whole letter, he essentially keeps saying that genuine faith, right, true saving faith, right, will have accompanying works. And he's done this through the letter, if you recall, by consistently exposing sin within the church, calling them out for specific sins. And and I think some of those have have hit home, I know for me directly, I know for some of you for us, some maybe not quite so, and yet we have our own set of specific sins and specific things that we're dealing with, right? Right? removed maybe from the first century, okay? But nonetheless, we have our own, and he's been calling them out for these specific sins and challenging them to examine themselves in light of that sin, saying, listen, true faith, right, true saving faith is going to have accompanying good works, and what you're doing here is not the mark or is not characteristic of true faith. So, Examine yourself. Okay, the, the, the four points that I'm going to give you and then we're going to move through them. I'm going to read the text is this. Um, the first one is dealing with possessing professors. So we're going to examine briefly possessing professors, not like college educators, okay? As, as far as a professor, we're talking about a professor of faith, right? Someone who proclaims to have Faith. And we talked about that back in I think it was chapter three, chapter two. All right. The second point that we're gonna look at is departed professors. Point number three that we're gonna look at is the pursuit of the possessing. And the final point that we're gonna look at is the power of the gospel. James chapter 5 verse 19 says this. It says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Verse 19, he says, My brethren, he's dealing with possessing professors again throughout the entire letter James has been addressing who right he's been addressing professing christians right professing believers right now this group would inevitably include individuals who are both true christians as well as false converts, right? Again, we're talking about someone just professing to have faith. Someone saying, I'm a Christian, right? I think we all know people that say, I am a Christian. And among those people, we know that there are true believers, right? This person over here proclaims to be a Christian, and there's obvious evidence in this person's life that he or she is truly a Christian, and then we all know others, and we've seen others, and through history we've known others that say, Hey, I am a, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. And yet there's something that's, that's uh, um, out of uh, uh, accord or doesn't add up, if you will, with their profession of faith and maybe their lifestyle, right? We say they say they're a Christian. But wow, there's, there's no evidence in his or her life that he's a Christian, and most likely we're not dealing with a true believer, but we're dealing with what? A false convert. So, so throughout this letter, James has been addressing professing believers, knowing that of those who profess, there will be many who are true Christians and many who are false converts. But in this, this passage, okay, 19, when he says, my brethren, he's no longer talking to just the professing Christians, the, the uh, true believers and the false converts who are within the visible church, right? We've got the visible church, right? This is here, okay, the visible church, okay? And, and within this visible church, we are going to have... True believers, we're going to have false converts, those professing faith and not possessing faith, and then we're going to have some who aren't believers at all, right? Maybe because they've proclaimed, well, I'm, I'm just not there yet, God, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm figuring out, working through this whole faith thing, we'll see, I don't know, all right, I'm on the fence, Right? okay, maybe our, our youngest children here who, who God has yet to save, okay, so within this visible church, we're going to have this group, and that's kind of who James has been addressing, the, the visible church, the, the specifically the professing Christians, those who are true converts, those who are false converts, but again, here he's addressing my brethren, he's addressing the true believer, and I want to give you briefly just a, a makeup or a, a break-up, if you will, of the true believer, right? The true believer, of course, one professes faith, right? In part, affirms the gospel and proclaims to have been saved by it, right? And this is a, a confession, right? Or I would say an orthodox confession of the gospel, right? No, no false gospels here, right? So the true believer's going to affirm the true gospel, as, as revealed to us through Scripture, okay? And also, the, the true believer, the one who not only professes faith, but the one who possesses faith, right, is going to have a life that's characterized with or by external works that affirms their profession of faith, Right? Now, we, we need to understand, though, that all of this for the true believer is, is subject to progressive sanctification, right? I mean, you take a, a 10-year-old child who has just been converted, okay, and, and is a true believer, and you, you put that 10-year-old child on, on the platform next to Pastor John MacArthur, and there's going to be a, a difference in the level of understanding and comprehension when it comes to the gospel, okay? The ability to articulate the truths of scripture, right? And then when you examine the evidence in that 10-year-old child's life, as opposed to the evidence in, in, in John MacArthur's life, um, there's going to be a whole lot more evidence in one column, okay, as, as in the other column. Because again, we understand that, that Again, our lives, my life as a believer, your life as a believer is subject to progressive sanctification. That is, we should be growing in our knowledge and our understanding. And as we continue to live, as God allows us to continue to live, that evidence in our lives, that that external evidence, right, of the internal change, right? We'll continue to grow and we'll continue to manifest ourselves as we grow spiritually and as we live longer. Okay, so, so we understand that. So I don't want to one size fits all it here when we're talking about the characterization or the marks of a true believer, right? But when you look at someone, you should be able to look at their life and say this person who is a true believer. When I consider the overall characterization of his or her life as I've known them, we see this evidence that, yeah, that, that he or she is a true believer, And then we have the false convert, right? The one who professes faith and yet does not possess faith. Okay? the one who says, I am a Christian and I believe in in Jesus. And there's many different ways they can articulate it. And I'm not going to go through all of those. But yet they make this profession of faith and yet they fail to possess faith. Okay? And then if you were to take a, a picture of their, their life, right, and characterize the overall all, um, uh, uh, elements of their life, you would say, hey, wait a minute, there's, there's something that doesn't add, add up here, right? And as we consider it within the context of James, the outward, right, doesn't reflect with the inward, at least the inward that they're proclaiming, and that is to be a Christian, right? There is no, for the false convert, there is no lasting external evidence of faith. In fact, the false convert, if you refer back to James chapter 2, we'll look at 2 real quick 18, 18 through 20. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons, they also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works, external evidence works, right, is useless. So the false convert, their faith that they profess is ultimately it's demonic faith, right? So in this text... Again, James is addressing, make no mistake of it, by brethren, he is addressing true converts. He is addressing possessing professors. He says in verse 19, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, if any among you strays, now, This group, right, this group we're we're labeling as the parted, right, to stray, to part from, right, the parted professors, okay? This group is composed, may, and I I say this cautiously actually, may be composed of both true believers and false converts. And, And where I hesitate, and I say may, I hesitate on the side of... True believers, okay? I would say that this group that James is referring to, those who stray, departed professors, is primarily referring to false converts. Those professing faith, yet failing to possess faith. Now, if departed professor is a true believer and that person has truly gone astray this person would be a believer living in unrepentant sin so much so that he has actually departed from the truth of the gospel right this person needs to be called back to faith and yet i think that that is the exception within this group the group of departed professors okay? The rule, I believe, is the false convert. The unbeliever, right? The unbeliever doesn't need to be called back to faith, but called to faith, for this person has never had faith to begin with. Now, concerning this this group, concerning the parted professor, right? The one who has strayed from the truth or is separated, if you will, from the truth of the gospel, though they proclaim to be a believer with their mouth, right? I think we have to make the assumption that this person may not be, could not be, probably is not a Christian, I don't believe this is an area where we want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I never think we should give someone the benefit of the doubt that they're a believer, that they are a believer just because they say they are. I think we are to examine that person. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that we arbitrarily run around and say, I, I, don't, I, I don't think she's a believer. I don't think he's a believer. I don't think you're a believer. Well, this person over here, I I think they're a believer. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to, tomorrow, you know what I'm going to do tomorrow? It's a holiday, so I've got free time. I'm going to go around Ada, and I'm going to tally up how many people I think are believers and how many people I I, I don't think are believers, right? That's what I'm not suggesting. That's not what James is suggesting. I don't do this, okay? Randy, I'm going to tell you, Randy doesn't do this. Um, however, there are times when it's necessary, okay? There are times when it's necessary. Now, now, real quick, before I, I go into that, recall the, the, this this letter that James has written, right? Throughout the entire text, is he's exposing this sin, right? He's been confronting us individually, right? Forcing us to examine ourselves, not so much examine others, okay? However, there is a time that I do believe it's necessary to examine the professed or the proclaimed faith of another, okay? I'm going to give you several examples, all right? One, as a church, when we decide that, hey, you know what? We want to support a mission organization or we want to support a specific missionary. I think it is more than appropriate. In fact, I believe it's necessary. And if we failed to do that, I believe it would be sin on our part as we sit down and we examine that person, we examined their profession of faith. We examined their life. We did that with Ryan Prowl um, when we first met him, Randy and I. We sat down with him and we talked with him about his faith, his beliefs, his life. And it was, a, it was a process from the first time we met him at Starbucks to the time that as a church we said, you know what, we are going to support you in your family on this mission that God has called you because we we affirm God's call on your life, not only as a believer, but to this specific mission, okay? We do this when it comes to church membership, right? If you want to join this church in membership, right? If you want to serve under that membership, we do what as a church? We examine your life, right? We're not going to welcome someone in a church membership who's not a believer, So it's necessary for us to examine your professed faith, right? You say you're a Christian. Well, what exactly does that mean? What do you believe? What do you believe about the gospel, all right? And now that you've affirmed the gospel, all right, how is it that you live your life? And we examine that to the extent that we're able to examine that. And we we do understand, though, again, it's a progressive thing, and time will reveal that more clearly or more fully, We do that when someone comes to us and says, you know what, I am a believer and I've never been baptized and I want to be baptized. Well, as as a pastor, right, or as an individual who's going to baptize someone, it would be your responsibility to examine that person and examine their profession of faith to see if they truly are a believer to the extent that you can determine that. I don't want to be responsible for baptizing a non-believer. Randy doesn't want to be responsible for baptizing a non-believer. If you were going to baptize someone, you wouldn't want to be responsible for baptizing a, a non-believer. So again, it's called to examine that, that person's profession of faith in that individual's life, right? We see someone within the body who's living in habitual, unrepentant sin. Again, it's time to sit down with that person. It's time to examine their profession of faith, right, with the external evidence that they are um, uh, uh, leaving, if you will, or living um, as, as well, right? I think this scenario in James, right, gives us cause to examine another's profession of faith, right? You have someone living in such a way that denies the truth of the gospel, okay? Then I think it's time to stop and say, all right, let's examine that person's life as we pursue that person to see if they truly are in the faith. Now, understand that when we, we do this, okay, when we, and again, I say cautiously when it comes to examining another's faith. Faith Before we do that, obviously, we must be examining our own selves. And if you're not examining yourself, I would say stop, right? I mean, even if it's a legitimate case to, to, to look at someone else or to pursue someone else, if you haven't examined your own self first, I would say stop and you do that before you do this over here. But when we do it, one, understand that we do it for the glory of God, first and foremost, okay? And then when we do it, we do it for the sake of the person's soul that we're examining, because as, at least as a pastor and even as an individual, right, depending on whether or not you believe that that individual is a, a, a true believer, a true Christian, or a false convert, right, that's in part going to dictate how you minister to that person, how you proclaim, not, not if you proclaim the gospel to that person, right? Because that's going to happen regardless of whether or not that person is a believer or an unbeliever, but how you approach them in proclaiming the gospel to them, okay? If I had to confront Randy, I'm going to use him for an illustration, and truly believing that Randy is a believer, Okay? If I had to confront Randy on an issue okay, that I believe he was in sin over, okay, knowing that he is a believer, I would, I would approach that differently than someone that maybe professes faith but has no external evidence in their life that they are a Christian. Okay? I would approach them in a different way than I would approach someone who not only professes it, but I believe truly possesses it. Okay? So that's in part one of the reasons why, why we do that, because it, it will enable us, I believe, to go after them with the gospel, regardless of whether or not they're a believer or an unbeliever. It will enable us to go after them with the gospel more effectively. Now, this parted professor practically, okay, let's, let's think about this just practically for a moment. Practically, what does this parted professor look like re- relationally within the body to the body, you know, the, the church, okay? Well, I think there will be those among us who have, in fact, left us. And they've, they've left us with no, left the fellowship, okay, left the church is what I'm referring to, with no biblically justifiable reason, Right, we've had people in this church that have, you know, job changes and stuff like that, right? That have had had to go, had to leave. Okay, that's that's obviously not what we're referring to, right? And then there have been others, maybe not here, maybe at other fellowships, other churches that we've been a part of. Okay, and and I'm not bringing this up because I want us to be thinking about those individuals right now. Okay, but but we, we we've all been in those circumstances where we've had people within our fellowship. And all of a sudden, one Sunday comes, two Sunday comes, one month, two months, three months, six months. And it's like, where where is this person gone? Where, where, where has this person, I mean, they're, they're just gone, right? Someone that professed faith, maybe someone that was, was even a, 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 um, a member of that church, okay? Or a long time attender of that church. And all of a sudden, it's like they're just, they're gone and we have no idea why, why they're gone. And so what do we do? We pursue them. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to stop by. I'm going to see what's going on, right? You start to pursue them, or you talk to to your pastor or to the Sunday school teacher or whatever the scenario may have been or may be. Because you're concerned about this person. You're going to find out what's going on. And then as the story begins to unfold about what's been going on in this person's life, your response is, oh, I see. I didn't know that they did that or they were doing this whether that happened, or wow, he left his wife, or she did that—no joke. Or he no longer wants to be this. Um, okay, so so that in part is is a potential scenario, right? That we have probably all seen unfold, or at will some point see unfold. Again, an example of the parted professor, the one here who leaves and leaves. Sinfully so, or as a result, if you will, of sin, right? Then there are going to be those who might be here among us, um, attenders who profess faith, right? Maybe long term, maybe short term. I'm going to give you a scenario. Now, it's it's a it's a tragic, I believe. Um, it, it's a good example, but it's a tra- a tragic situation. I had listened to a sermon. Recently, mega church. Not going to name names. Not even going to tell you what state it's in because I don't want to. I don't want to call them out. Um, but but mega church, thousands of attenders with multiple locations. Okay, and, and within this scenario, I was listening to this sermon. The pastor was talking about this um, this couple that wanted to serve within one of their their locations. Okay. And this, this couple had, hadn't been, well, one of the members of the couple had been attending for quite some time, and the other person in the couple had not been attending for quite some time. Both professing believers, and they wanted to they wanted to serve, like on the, the church's like uh, greeting, ministry, whatever team it was, right? And they wanted to serve in that capacity, okay? But the pastor had to step in, and this is going on in the sermon. He's talking about this in the sermon. And the pastor had to step in, and he had to say, Well, right now, you can't you can't serve because you're not qualified to serve, okay? And here's why you're not qualified to serve, okay? is because the the couple, okay, was two men in a homosexual relationship. And the reason in the sermon that the pastor gave that these two men couldn't serve is one of the men in the relationship was still married to a woman and since he's married And seeing this man over here, well, that's adultery, and we can't allow people within adultery or an adulterous relationship to serve within the church. So once you get that adulterous relationship squared away, right, and you're no longer married to your wife, then you can go ahead and serve within the body. And in the meantime, absolutely ignoring the fact that we had two men within a a homosexual relationship, which was was completely um, uh, against, we know, God's design, God's law, God's commands for us living in this unrepentant homosexual lifestyle, right? So using that, and that's a pretty extreme scenario, okay? But it doesn't mean that we couldn't see it here, okay? It doesn't mean that some Sunday there might not be a a homosexual couple that could walk within this church who profess to be Christians who say, hey, you know, we're looking for a church. Um, We'd like to come here, and we'd like to maybe stay here, right? That would be an example of parted professors among us, okay? Individuals professing faith, yet living, right? We're talking again about external evidence in such a way, okay, that completely contradicts their profession of faith, okay? Parted professors, okay, right? They've departed from the truth of the gospel, even though they may be among us, right? Again... Extreme, severe scenario, but we might see it on a smaller scale individually with us here when it comes to struggling with sin, specifically unrepentant sin. Which leads us then to our next scenario that we might see this, right? Those who have been put out of fellowship as a result of church discipline. So let's look at Matthew um, 18 as we consider that. So Matthew chapter 18, uh, we'll look at 15 through 18 concerning church discipline. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now again, concerning church discipline, we know that it's a, it's a process, right? But within this process, again, we're talking about the parted professor, Right? Talking about, referring to, again, the one who has departed, if you will, from the truth of the gospel. Let's look at the James, um, no, go back to James, sorry. Five, sorry, I changed my... Okay, back in James five nineteen and twenty, I'm going to read it again. My brethren, if any um, among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, right? Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James five nineteen through twenty concerning Matthew eighteen in church discipline falls within this scope because we're talking about professors of faith, specifically professors of faith who have been among us. Again, not necessarily true converts. We have several testimonies, um, examples, if you will, in Scripture of parted professors, right? And I'm going to look at those just briefly. Let's look at Hebrews 5. 5 verse 12 through 6, 9. So I'm going to start in verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to... Explain, since you have become dull of hearing. "'For though by this time you ought to be teachers, "'you have need again for someone to teach you "'the elementary principles of the oracles of God, "'and you have come to need milk and not solid food. "'For everyone who partakes only of milk "'is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, "'for he is an infant. "'But solid food is for the mature, "'who, because of practice, "'have their senses trained to discern good and evil.' Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, And have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles... It is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So again, a, an example of uh, the, the author, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, right, the human writer of Hebrews, gives this example of those who were among them, who professed faith, right, who tasted he says of the things of God not necessarily referring to true believers here but maybe false converts among them experiencing the blessings in a in a way to a degree of being in fellowship right have what departed from that and departed from that truth again dealing with the parted professor okay and we see it in first john it gives us another example of parted professors first john 2 Right? concerning um, 2, verse 19, concerning false antichrists, right? says, uh, actually, I'll read uh, 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared... And from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Again, uh, practically, not saying that we're going to have those among us who are, you know, antichrists, okay? But nonetheless, an example in the first century church where there were those among them who professed faith and yet departed and wound up within their life, departing from that faith, departing from the truth of the gospel. Now, concerning the part of professors, James says they have what? They have departed from the truth. They have wandered from the truth. Professing Christians, again, most likely false converts here is what James is referring to. Not necessarily, but most likely. They have wandered from the truth of the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean that they were proclaiming heresy concerning the gospel. Okay, doesn't mean that they were necessarily... Denying Orthodox doctrine concerning the gospel, twisting the truth of the gospel, right? They were proclaiming any type of heresy or false doctrine at all. Though this would, I mean, trust me, it would qualify as wandering from the truth of the gospel, okay? Someone who at one point professes an Orthodox understanding of the gospel, Orthodox understanding of the Godhead, okay? And then the next thing you know, they deny that by teaching heresy. I mean, that is clearly wandering from the truth of the gospel. However, it's not what James is addressing in this letter. Let's remember the context of James, right? The theme, faith that works, right? James, throughout this letter, has again been addressing externals, right? Works, external evidence of a professed internal change, right? He's been addressing actions, okay, right? Faith without works is what he said in 2.17. Faith without works is dead. So, within the context of James, wandering from the truth, wandering from the truth of the gospel is evidenced by not merely words, again, proclaiming something false, but is evidenced by actions or lack of actions. So the parted professor that James is addressing here, who has wandered from the truth of the gospel as evidenced by what they're doing, how they're living their lives, how they're not living, okay? And the the example of the, the homosexual couple, right? Their wandering, if you will, from the truth of the gospel is evidenced by the fact that they're in this, this unrepentant, unbiblical relationship. Wandering from the truth of the gospel as evidenced by externals, by actions, by works, or by the absence of works. Think back throughout the entire letter and several of the issues, the sin, the sins that James confronted, right? Hearing and not doing, chapter 1, right? Hearing and not doing, right? Don't merely listen to the word. Deceive yourself, but do what it says. When we hear and we don't do, And when one's life is characterized by that, though they profess faith, that individual has what? According to James, wandered from the truth of the gospel. Showing partiality, right? Towards the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, I think he's dealing with this issue. When one's life is characterized by showing partiality towards others, right? Disdain for the have, nots, preference for the haves. When your life is characterized by that partiality, right, it's evidence that you've wandered from the truth of the gospel, right? He addresses cursing man and blessing God with the same tongue, right? When your life is characterized by that, again, what? Evidence of wandering from the truth of the gospel. The one who possesses demonic faith, right? Faith without works, evidence of of wandering from the truth of the gospel. Arguing and disputing with others, taking advantage of others. Again, if one who professes to be a Christian and yet their life is characterized by this within the context of James, again, that's evidence of wandering from the truth of the gospel. And I think we could fill in the blank there. We could look at God's command, commands for Christians, right? His, his design... For our lives and how we t- are to act and how we are to obey. Not that work saves us. Of course, we know it doesn't, right? But we can look at God's pattern for Christian living and we depart from that pattern and we live in that unrepentantly. We live in that consistently when our lives can be characterized by that. Again, it's what? It's evidence of departing from the truth of the gospel. So, summarizing. Wandering from the truth of the gospel, it's this. It's not living. And again, in the context of James, we're not talking about what's coming out of the mouth as far as an affirmation or a denial of doctrine, okay? But it's not living in light of the glorious gospel that you proclaim saved you. That's wandering from the truth of the gospel. I mean, let's think about this for a minute. When I, when, I, when I... Okay, I'm talking about me here. When I say that I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, okay? Here's... If you've, if you've wondered what that means or what I'm saying, I'm going to explain that to you. Here's what it means when I say that I am a Christian or a Christ follower, okay? It means that I was born dead in sin. And because of my sin, I was completely and entirely separated from God. In fact, right, dead in my sin, I was unable to do anything spiritually pleasing to God, anything to to save myself. I, I was fully deserving of God's righteous wrath. Also means to say that I'm a Christian this holy and righteous God that, that should, by all accounts, punish me, shouldn't give me any life, in fact, should send me straight to eternal torment and hell, but, but this holy and righteous God sent His perfect Son, fully God and fully man, and He sent Him to earth To live the life that I could never live, yet was commanded to live. Not only did he live the life that I was commanded to live, yet could never live, he died the death that I deserved, yet ultimately was the death that I could never die because Christ Jesus died like no man could or would or will ever die because he was perfect and he was holy and he was righteous. And he bore, being perfect and holy and righteous, the full wrath of God in a way that not only we could never do, in a way that we could never understand. See, the wrath that Jesus suffered on the cross, okay, is immensely worse and immensely greater, even though it was momentary. It's immensely worse and greater than all the sinners, whoever, all the, the, the multitude of people, who will, will, will be justly condemned to hell, okay? If you could tally up and add up that eternity of wrath that they will face, okay? That's nothing compared to the wrath that Christ experienced even momentarily on the cross. So now professing to be a Christian, okay? I'm professing that God sent Jesus to do this for me For my sin, okay? I profess that I've repented, turned from sin, right? And turning from sin, turned to Christ. And as a result of, not my repentance and faith, but as a result of Christ's work, God saved me. So then this, this, this God, the Son, this Jesus, the Christ who was crucified and killed on my behalf, professing to be a Christian, I also pre- profess that, that, that God raised him from the dead. In fact, he ascended to heaven, and he's there right now awaiting to return, to gather his own, and to eventually set all things right. So when I profess to be a Christian, okay, that understand when i tell you that i'm a christian that's that's what i am professing now if i'm professing that by saying that i'm a christian how can i deny that by how i live i mean why would i want to why would you want to fully knowing right what you are, a wretched sinner, and who God is, and what he saved you from, right, and what he saved you to, right, himself, why would you want, why would you not want to live in light of that? It doesn't mean we're perfect, right? It doesn't mean that um, we're not going to sin, because we are. Okay, we do thought, deed, and action every day. At least I do. Okay, right. but to live in that unrepentingly, if that's a word, right, consistently throughout your life, the true believer is not going to do that. And the one who professes to be a Christian and yet his or her life is characterized. By that unrepentant sin that continued trampling underfoot the blood of Christ, the blood that they proclaim saved them. When the professor lives like that, the professor is not a possessor. So, again, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Our third point here is the pursuit, pursuit of the possessing. It says, and one turns him back. 19c, if we were going to uh, divide the, verse 19. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from his error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay. Um, notice what James doesn't do in this, in this section or in this verse, in, this, in these verses. He doesn't give a command to pursue parted professors. There is no imperative for us given here to pursue parted professors. Yet James is a letter of imperatives. So I have to ask myself, why? Why why consistently throughout this letter has he given these, these commands? Bam, 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 bam. One right after another, right after another. And now he's, 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 he's addressing false converts, okay, who, who have departed from the truth of the gospel or even potentially um, uh, true Christians who have departed from the truth of the gospel. And yet here he gives no command for my brethren, the true believers, to pursue them. Yet within this passage, we see the pursuit, or he assumes the pursuit of true believers of the part of professors. Well, one, these commands have already been given. Not that we don't need a reminder of these commands, right? Because I think we do, all right? Uh, At least I do. I know I need a reminder of the command to pursue others, okay? We're given it by Christ in the Great Commission, Right? Um, let's look at it, Matthew 8, uh, 28, sorry. Okay, in Matthew 28, verses 16 and 20 in the Great Commission. It says, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go preach the gospel. That's what Jesus says. He says, "Pursue, pursue people. That command for us, for the disciples, for us, to preach the gospel, right? It's, it's not just a command for us to do towards just unbelievers, okay? It's, it's a command that we proclaim the gospel to believers as well. we we'll see it again in Matthew. Um, Matthew, so we'll go back. 18 All Right. Church discipline, what's the what's the point of church discipline? Right. It's to glorify God as fallen if you will, parted professors, I guess, are reconciled to God. And that's why that's why we do church discipline. All right? We don't have church discipline because we want to point out your sin so we can feel better about ourselves, right? so we can have something to talk about or something to do, right? No. We pursue the parted professor for the glory of God as the parted professor is turned from sin, right? And turned to God and is reconciled to Him. So I think maybe in part, James, right? I mean, one, though he's given all these imperatives... He knows that maybe, right, we've already been given these commands to pursue. We've already been given these perm- commands to proclaim the gospel to believers, to non-believers, to part professors, to whomever, right? But here's the thing, and this was my, my kind of main point of the title, it was this. It's true faith, again, passionately pursues parted professors with a proclamation of the gospel, right? Pursuing others with the gospel. Let's say should be, better be, is a natural outflow of the maturing believer. We've seen that. I've seen that here. And I know Randy's seen that within this church. When we have had individuals that have been a part of us and for sinful reasons gone out from us, right? Not being prompted by me and not being prompted by Randy, though we have pursued them, we've we've seen others within this body Pursue them, And we didn't command them to. We didn't give them an imperative to. As a matter of fact, we would be talking about it saying, what, what, what should we do? How should we approach this? And the next thing, we're getting reports back of this family and this person and that person and this, this individual over here. They've all gone over or gone after this individual and they have pursued them. Why? Because true faith passionately pursues the parted professor with a proclamation of the gospel. It's an natural outflow of your faith. And if it's not, if it's not, if you find yourself professing faith and yet you have absolutely no desire to pursue anyone with the gospel, then going back to that whole examination thing at the beginning where we're examining others' faith, for only specific reasons, I would say you need to stop and you need to examine your own faith. If you have no desire to, to pursue anyone with the gospel, then you need to examine yourself to see if, in fact, your faith is true faith or if your faith is demonic faith. He says in verse 20, let him know, this is my final point, um, the power of the gospel. He says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I'm going to throw in a big kind of bold asterisk thing here in my notes, all right? And I, it's very important that I want you to understand. This verse in no way, these verses in no way is trying to give man the credit for turning a sinner from his ways or for saving his souls, right? And I don't want anyone to be (laughs) misled into believing that that's potentially the case, right? Because it's not. We know that only God can save. Only God can grant repentance and faith, right? Only God can turn a sinner, right? Even though we are to pursue them, okay? Here's the thing true Christians, right? The pursuing, possessing professor, I had to stop and think that out before I said it. I didn't want to get my peas all jumbled up. Okay. Um, are but instruments that God uses to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize, and disciple. That's, that's the point of that in, in verse 20. Let him who knows Right, whatever it says, I'm sorry. Um, let, him, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from, the, from death, will cover a multitude of sins. All right, let you know that you're just but the instrument that God uses in this process, all right? And this is God's chosen process. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. All you are is but a tool. Like when I go out and I build something and I enjoy building stuff, And when I'm done with it and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it and I'm like proud of myself. I probably shouldn't be, but I'm proud of myself. And someone comes up to me and they're like, man, Nate, you know what you did. That is like the 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 chicken house Taj Mahal. That's just absolutely, utterly amazing what you built. You know, I'm not gonna sit there and say, Well, you know, it was my hammer. Right? I mean, I you know, I mean, you know, if it wasn't for that hammer, I mean, I couldn't have done it. I mean, really, all all the credit and all the glory absolutely goes to my hammer. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to go home and put it on the shelf and lift it high because it was, it was really the hammer that did it. No, the hammer was just but an instrument. It was but just a tool, right? The builder built it. Well, we're just the hammers, folks. Right? That's, that's all we are in this entire process. We're just, we're just a tool, okay? We've been given the Great Commission, right? Preach the gospel to evangelize and disciple Right? That God might save as a result. But we're just, we're just the instrument. Romans 10. Verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. This is God's ordained God's ordained means is to use fallen men to proclaim the perfect message of the gospel. See it in Second Corinthians five eighteen. Now all these things are from God who, what? It says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I mean, when you think about this for a minute, right? I mean, God doesn't have to use us, right? He doesn't need us, okay? He he absolutely doesn't. And, And yet, somehow, and this is what just always just blows my mind. Somehow... It brings him glory. In fact, more glory to do this way than to not. Again, just blows my mind. But somehow it brings him glory, more glory to use fallen men, right? Redeemed fallen men, reconciled fallen men, but to use them to call others to that same redemption, to that same reconciliation through the proclamation of the gospel. I and mean, that should amaze you that, that God is glorified by using my, by using me. By using you. Wow. I mean, He he doesn't he doesn't need you. Doesn't have to use you, but somehow he's glorified and glorified more by using you to pursue others with the gospel. Now, in verse um, 20 of James, chapter 5, he says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner, a sinner from the error of his way, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Now, in 19, right, we said that James was addressing, right, true believers, concerning, professing believers, who may or may not be true believers, most likely false converts, okay? Now, the sinner referred to in verse 20, right? James is, make no mistake about it, he is referring to, undoubtedly referring to non-believers. The word that he uses for sinner is used, I want to say exclusively. I almost hesitate to say it exclusively, but I'm almost 98% positive, right? That this word that he uses here in verse 20 to refer to a sinner is only used in the New Testament of non believers. So this would have to be the exception to the rule, and I don't buy it, okay? James is referring to the sinner in verse 20 as the unregenerate, as the non believer, as the false convert. And that's why I say in verse 19, I think James is thinking false converts here, right? He's thinking those who have professed faith and yet with their lives have absolutely denied that faith with which they profess. So in Matthew um, nine thirteen, 13, um, just a few usages real briefly of this word sinner where it clearly refers to um, non-Christians. Matthew 9.13 But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. See it in Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates But God, I love the But God passages but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet what? Sinners. Unregenerated sinners. We're still sinner folks. Sinners. I mean, don't, don't, don't make any mistake about that. But you, wait, while we were yet unregenerated, Christ died for us. I was thinking about the tax collector, right? I think it was last week. Forgive me, Randy, maybe the week before, Mark, concerning Matthew, right, the tax collector, right? Whom the Jews would have considered the chief of all sinners, the lowest of the low, right? That's who, that's who James is referring to here in regards to sinners, right? He who turns a wretch from his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And by death here, he's not referring to physical death, right? We know that's coming, right? It's coming for all of us unless Christ returns, right? It's coming for all of us. He's referring to spiritual death, separation from God eternally, and torment in hell. Save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Folks, this is the power of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel, is to save man's soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What did Paul say in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of what? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe or everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. The power of the gospel is to save men. That's why we're to proclaim it. It glorifies God. He saved us with it. It's the means that he uses to save men. See, God uses the proclaimed gospel to save sinners, right? And to save sinners from his righteous wrath. And he saves them from his wrath. And then he saves them to himself. And he saves them from all their sins. From all your sins. Every single one. A multitude of sins. Now what an appropriate way that James ends this letter. And Randy and I were talking about this the other day, and I'm grateful for for the discussion that we had. He he ends this letter differently than most New Testament letters are ended. Most have this, you know, um, rather nice doxology given. Right? James ends it. In such a way that should motivate us, motivate you, motivate me, okay, to go get them. He opened his letter with the gospel, right? James, he said a bondservant, a slave of Christ, right? How a slave of Christ? By the gospel, through the power of the gospel. And then he ends this letter with a reminder of the power of of the gospel, and the power of the gospel to save sinners from God's righteous wrath and to save sinners to God. And as a true believer, okay? As a Christ follower, right? You should be motivated. I should be motivated. We should leave this letter motivated to go get them. That is to passionately pursue And at this point, I'm going to forget the parted professors, okay? We should, as believers, desire to passionately pursue others with a proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of their souls because God, if you are a believer, passionately pursued you for the salvation of your soul. Let's pray. Father, um... Thank you for James, I mean the person that you used um, to write this letter. Um, thank you for using him. God, it is your letter, and I know that he wrote it, um, but you had him write it in every word and every, every punctuation, and it was, it was all from you. Um, but thank you for him and for, for using him to give us this letter, that we may be um, in part transformed sanctified um that you would continue to sanctify us as a result um of it uh lord thank you for the time um that you've allowed us um over the past who knows how long um to go through this this letter this this book thank you for for speaking to us um through your word, for, for calling us to repentance, um, for calling us to, to faith um, through your word, for, for sanctifying us. And Lord, I, I ask that you would continue that process. I mean, I know that you will, but, but I desire it. And because, I mean, I'm confident that you're going to continue to sanctify us on all whom you have saved. And you will continue it until the day you call us home. Or the day you return, but I desire it so much I'm compelled to ask for it. And so I do ask for it, Jesus. Um, Continue to sanctify me um, as a result of the proclamation of your word and the study of your word. Lord, continue to sanctify this, this church as a result of the proclamation and the study of your word. God, I ask that you do it for your glory. Of course, for our good. I pray that you would you would use us, and I'm still just amazed that you do and that you 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 want to. I just at times I don't get it. I mean, I know that it's it's your plan. This is your way of of calling sinners to you is to use other sinners to proclaim this glorious gospel, and. I, I I'm just, I don't get it, and yet I'm amazed by it. And I thank you for it. And I thank you for calling us to this ministry. Not, not us by just me or by Randy, but you have, you have all called us in a way to this ministry of reconciliation through the proclamation of the glorious gospel. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us many opportunities to proclaim your gospel to our children, to our family, to our friends, to one another, to the lost out there, to the lost in here. I pray, Lord, that we would have opportunity to proclaim the gospel to to believers, (laughs) As well as unbelievers, because you know that that it's not just for unbelievers, but it's for all of us. And we all need it. So I pray for those opportunities. I pray for awareness in those opportunities. And I pray, God, that you would use those opportunities to glorify yourself as you save many and as you sanctify all of your children. Jesus, I I love you and I worship you and I praise you for you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of all of our praise, of all of our adoration, of all of our worship. Amen.